0: Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is one of the greatest entrepreneurs America has ever produced. Uh, He is absolutely legendary in the business, and he's the author of a new book that is uh, really, really just phenomenal, that tells his story, is so inspirational. The book, No Red Lights, Reflections on Life, 50 Years in Venture Capital, and Never Driving Alone. Our guest today is the great Alan Patrykhoff. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Alan, there are so many places to start, and I've been lucky enough to know members of the Patrykhoff family, notably your son, John, for many, many years. Uh, And uh, the book is just uh, fantastic. I had a chance to read it the last few days. I'd love to start by going all the way back to those early, early days when you were selling the Saturday Evening Post, and uh, that seemed to be the first of many entrepreneurial ventures that began for you right from the very beginning, and some instilled from your dad and from your mom, but I'd love to go back to sort of the very beginning of Alan Patrickoff as the entrepreneur.
1: Well, that's a that's, that's really stretching it since I was probably six or seven uh, years old at that time. But it, I think the point I was bringing up in the book is that uh, my father uh, kind of pushed me out uh, early on. Uh, I'm not sure I would do that with my son today. Uh, but we lived a block from the subway entrance. And uh, in those days, people would uh, carry a bag, uh, which today they, they don't carry the, as much of their shoulder as their hand. And they you'd stand by the subway and news- they'd sell newspapers. And I I sold the new- Saturday Evening Post, which as I recall was about a nickel uh, in those days. I think a paper was two cents. And uh, I guess it kind of instilled in me the idea of, uh, you know, uh, making a buck uh, or less at that time. Uh, and uh, I guess, that kind of thinking stuck with me until I moved to another apartment building and it was during the war. And while I didn't do it for money, I, in a way was an entrepreneurial type activity. I collected, uh, uh, tin cans for the war effort. I collected newspapers for the war effort. I actually sold war bonds. Uh, and I was only, uh, uh you know, 10 years old, uh, at the time. Uh, but, uh, Uh, It was, uh, you know, you you kind of get the the understanding of the process of uh, buying and selling and doing transactions.
0: And, And Alan, there's something about that immigrant work ethic. My grandfather also came over from Ellis Island. I guess you have roots in both the Ukraine and what eventually became part of Belarus. But that immigrant work ethic, that's very unique to people from our world. I know you spent some time in another part of the country also, but there's something about that New York immigrant work ethic that's very special.
1: Yeah, My father came to Ellis Island. I, I don't recall what my mother did, but my father specifically I know did. Yeah,
0: and that entrepreneurial spirit took a different turn. You had opportunities to go to a lot of universities uh, on the East coast, I guess it was back at the beginning of Brandeis, which I know you considered. Um, but you chose to go to Ohio state and that ties into some Ohio roots.
1: Yes. My father, when he came over to this country, uh, and from Ellis Island, went virtually straight on a train to Middletown Ohio to, uh, his mother's mother's sister and, uh, who, where he was brought up with, I don't know, 14 or 15 other kids. And, uh, 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 it was a very big family environment. And from there, he then at some point moved to New York.
0: And at Ohio, you also had a little bit of an entrepreneurial career.
1: Yes. I, uh, well, you know, I had to work my way through school, uh, and, uh, I, you know, took whatever opportunities there were. I wrote for the Columbus citizen, a column, uh, which was a lucky deal. I, uh, did surveys for the Brown Shoe Company. I sold uh, uh, fraternity favors, which was a very good lucrative business uh, to uh, to all the fraternities, which is a big thing in Ohio at, at Ohio State. And uh, I even was able to sell that business to another uh, student when I left. So uh, I I managed to you know, supplement whatever my folks gave me uh, and pay my way through school.
0: And Wall Street was always something that interested you.
1: Yeah, well, my father had been in the what they call the peace goods remnants business. And uh, at some point in his life, I don't remember the exactly how old he was, but he uh, had always uh, played the stock market. He became a stockbroker. Uh, and uh, so I was kind of brought up uh, with daily reading the, the stock market and, uh, talking about, uh, the stock market with my father. And, uh, when I came out of college, uh, it kind of seemed the natural thing to do was to go look for a job on wall street. And, uh, uh as I say in the book, it was not a simple thing to get a job coming from Ohio state. There weren't recruiters out there, uh. In fact, recruiters weren't that big anyplace at the time. But you know, uh, you know, if you had a better pedigree from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, one of the Ivy League schools, it would have been a lot easier. And uh, I kind of, you know, burned shoe leather leather by uh, walking the streets and uh, knocking on doors, which you could do then. You can't do it today uh, because there are too many guards at the front entrance. Uh, and was fortunate enough to get a job.
0: Tell that story, because I guess you started down around 110 Wall Street and literally went knocking door to door.
1: Yeah, I'd ride the elevator to the top floor and then walk down the stairs and uh, took me a couple of months, but I ended up getting a job at 63 Wall Street. So I went through a fair number of buildings before I got there and uh, actually Job I got was on the top floor there on the 35th floor, as I recall. Uh, and uh, um, I was very fortunate that the job I got uh, was a really high quality job with an investment counseling firm with a great pedigree. And uh, uh, that I think served me well, uh, as I think most people's career as I moved from there to another really good job few years later, and then to another one. Uh, and uh, I don't think the quality ever went down. Uh, and it was one, one successive experience after another.
0: And very early on, after that tenure, I guess that was with Nason Thomas, that first job. Yep. Right, yeah. And I want to jump around a little because there's so much ground to cover, but you end up in an office and your landlord is Bill Paley.
1: Yeah, well, he owned. Um, uh, now you jump ahead to when I started my own business. I started my own business in 1970 and uh, we took a uh, an office, I, I love to say it was a, we took a full floor, which was one office. When you got out of the elevator, you turn left to one office, and you turn right to another office. Uh, so, but nevertheless, I could say I had a full floor. And actually later on, while I was there, I took a second floor. So I got two more offices, and uh, it was owned by the Paley Foundation. Uh, Bill Paley, for those who don't know, was the uh, chairman, CEO, major shareholder of CBS. And uh, he not only owned that building, but he owned what they call the Vest Pocket Park, which was right next door, which exists to this day, with a waterfall in the back and a place for people to sit on 53rd street and uh, he was a big fan of hot dogs. So he's, he opened up a hot dog stand uh, in, the, in, in the middle of this tiny park. Uh, so it was, it was a kind of nice place to be good location. And uh, it was a very happy days for us uh, in the start of Alan Patrickoff Associates.
0: Okay, so we are gonna jump around cause there is so much ground to cover. Can we talk about New York Magazine? which you were the founding publisher of. I, I did not know that. And I, I thought that was such an interesting part of the Alan patrickoff story. Well, I wasn't the
1: founding publisher. I was the founding, I was the founding president and and then chairman. Uh, the publisher was a guy named George Hirsch. Uh,
0: oh, George who did, uh, he was one of Fred LeBeau's friends. Wasn't he did Runner's you know, World? He's now
1: exactly. And he's chairman of the New York Road Riders Club. Sure. Who I'm counting on to uh, let me in to to walk, jog the marathon this year in November in New York. But uh, we'll see. I'm in training now. We'll see if I make it. I hope so. Uh, But uh, Clay Felker was the really creative genius behind New York Magazine. And uh, I helped to put it together financially with a man by the name of Armand Ertz, who was uh, one of the senior partners at Lone Roads at that time. And uh, we financed the startup and the the money that was put up. This was in 1967. Before I started Alan Patrick Office Associates, since you're backing up, uh, it kind of whetted my appetite for doing my own thing. But uh, uh, I was very intrigued with the idea of being involved in an actual operating business uh, as opposed to what I had been doing since I started uh, on Wall Street in 55, which was to really invest in public securities. So while uh, I was with my uh, uh, firm before I started my own, uh, uh, they would do public securities primarily for a family group, but they once in a while got the opportunity to go into private investments. And New York Magazine was one of the. Opportunities, and nobody else in the firm was interested in uh, these crazy small deals, uh, except me. Uh, and the uh, head of the investment firm, uh, which managed this family's money, uh, had relationships all over Wall Street. That was always uh, were always presenting uh, opportunities for investment and. Uh, to be part of the club, he would invest. And uh, I was the one who got that uh, assignment to be involved with the companies. Uh, Lynn Broadcasting was one of them also. Uh, another company was called, which which was in the, in the radio and television business, and another company called Datascope Corporation, which was in the medical electronics business. And my involvement with those companies, uh, I was on the board of all of them, uh, wetted my appetite to say, you know, I like this much more than buying stocks that go up and down every day based on psychological changes in the marketplace, inflation, uh, interest rates. uh, These private companies have a dynamic of their own and uh, I found it much more exciting. And that was the beginning 1970 of my career that uh, goes on to today, 52 years later.
0: And that was the Godisman family, who you were investing there yes. in for yes, give or take yeah. ten years.
1: Yeah. Who had made their fortune in the pulp and paper business.
0: So you start your own business. It's really that notion of investing and helping entrepreneurs grow, which has been so endemic to your entire career. Do you remember going back to those early days? What some of the first properties were that you looked at?
1: Yeah. Well, I recall some of them in the in the book. I mean. I remember the very, very first investment uh, that we made uh, as Alan Patrick Harper Associates was in a company which at that time was called Revere Smelting and Refining, uh, the abbreviation RSR, which uh, uh, was uh, a transaction that was uh, an odd, strictly not a typical venture deal, but it was a young, very exciting, talented, a uh, guy who really had a lot, in spite of his young age, had a lot of experience in the in the lead smelting and refining business, and wanted to buy a scrap operation in New Jersey. And we helped finance it. And uh, I'm proud to say that that company, uh, you know, over the years, many years, became, believe it or not, the largest. Uh, smelting and refining company in the world, not just the United States, not just in New Jersey where it started, but in the entire world and has plants all over the world today and uh, is a
0: multi-billion dollar company. And Alan, when you started the company back in 1970 and then later rebranded as you grew to Apex, the venture capital world was much smaller than it is now. You were really there at the very, very beginning. And arguably, if we were gonna create a a Mount Rushmore, if you will, of venture capitalists, you would be on it. Talk about the landscape back then when you began and reflections now all these years later as you're still very much in the thick of it. It has grown so much and it's such a dominant force in global business. But back then in 1970, it was really in its infancy.
1: I don't think it was even called venture capital in those days, it was the deal business, it was the buyout business, it was uh, the word venture, as I recall, really uh, didn't become prominent until the mid the mid 70s, uh, early, uh, you know, somewhere around 73, 74. But we, uh, in those days, you didn't, you know, answer telephone calls, you had to really go out and hustle and try to find deals because they just uh, just didn't come in over the transom. I mean, we would never, in today's world, a a lead smelting and refining company that processed used batteries, I doubt sincerely would get financing from a venture capital firm. Um, Our second investment was in the animal feed supplement business. And then we started getting into... Plated wire, and uh, uh, we invested in a network, a company called Network Analysis, which really was at the very, very earliest stages of the internet. And so, you know, gradually technology took hold. And at the same time, in all fairness, you know, the West Coast venture business was starting. And because of where they were in Silicon Valley, uh, they probably had. Much more of a technology orientation, and I think to this day, uh, East Coast firms are not as uh, embedded in the technology world as the companies around San Francisco, in particular. Uh, but uh, both both coasts have prospered, as have many many cities uh, around the country, because there is venture in every every. Uh, city you can think of in this country today, uh, and uh, it's been proven. I mean, we had a tremendous success in uh, in my last iteration. I'm uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but in in, uh, in uh, Nashville. So I mean, and it wasn't in the music business. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, I think it's pretty uh, honest to say that whether you're in Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, or or New York, or or, uh, San Francisco. If you have a good idea, a good team put together, um, there's capital locally and nationally to support it.
0: And the hallmark seems to be consistent, which is you love working with young companies who are breaking out and starting something.
1: Yeah, I would say that's pretty fair. I mean, I built, Alan Patrickoff Associates, and then uh, broadened it to an international firm. We changed the name to Apex, Alan Patrickoff Associates International, the Axis for the International, and then uh, it got so big that it really became a private equity firm and lost its roots in the venture business and I became less interested in that. Uh, You remember, I started out, my first fund 1970 was two and a half million. And when I wrote the book, I checked uh, early this year before the last galleys went in. And Apex internationally is now managing 75 billion. Excuse me, it was when I wrote the book, 70 billion. Uh, I just checked recently because they've had some additional funds raised they're now up to $75 billion. Uh, So it, it morphed away from venture, and I wanted to stay with the early stage world. And as a result, after a two or three-year diversion into international development in the early 2000s, uh, I started another firm called Greycroft, named after my house in East Hampton. The house wasn't named after the business, the business was named after the house, and it was designed to be a purely strict venture capital business doing early stage deals. And even Greycroft now is up to the point of managing a couple of billion dollars uh, 16 years later and uh, uh, 17 years later. And uh, it too is, had this inexorable move into larger deals, uh, more established companies, and, and the venture business, while still very uh, prevalent at crop, is taking on less importance, which is inevitable. When your funds are bigger, you've got to make bigger
0: investments. Right. And going back to 2006, the technology landscape was very different. Going way back, uh, you talked about uh, early days of technology at some of your predecessor firms, your own, and the ones that you worked for uh, when you were a very young man. But you've always sort of leaned into and seen the future on technology before most of us did. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, I don't want, I, I don't want to. I'm not that
1: prescient. Uh, uh, you know, I'd say luck. Uh, Analysis, uh, uh, you know, being curious, uh, all of those things are important ingredients in uh, building a venture portfolio and being in the business I'm in. I mean, you have to always look ahead, as you probably know from reading the book and knowing me as you do. Uh, two years ago, I decided to leave Graycroft and uh, start another firm. At age 85, and I uh, thought I identified an area that was really virgin territory, which was the area of uh, investing in anything to do with uh, the ageless, what I call the ageless generation. I, I said 60 and over, but I—it's probably 50 and over. But you know, that's the fastest growing part of the population is the baby boomers. Uh, By 2030, there'll be uh, uh, more people over 60 than there will be under 18. Uh, And so we're investing. New firm is called Primetime Partners, perfectly appropriately named, uh, which invests in products, services, experiences, technology, anything that relates to uh, serving this generation, which, as I say, is very fast growing and has a lot, has the most money to spend and has the biggest Rolodex.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. L- l- let's come back to that. But, but before we- Well, get- you agree because you're approaching that generation. I, I Listen, I'm the last year of the baby boomers. I, I'm right there with you. Uh, 1964 is my, uh, uh, my roots. That's the last year of the baby boom. So let, let's stick with uh, uh, Greycroft for a little bit longer because you invested in some companies there that really became bellwethers for the future. Uh, The Huffington Post, I remember, and so many other investments. And before that, looking at companies like Apple and AOL, and you were there at the very beginning. uh, Today, that sector dominates the economy. Wall Street and the stock market goes up and down with the tech stocks as as arguably the biggest weight uh, on there in terms of influence reflecting back on those early days at graycroft i guess you you did see we have to give credit where credit is due a lot of where things were starting to go
1: well uh, first of all AOL and, and uh, apple were in apex they were not Allen patoff associates before it even became apex uh Huffington Post was in graycroft then mo was in graycroft uh I, my investment in Axios, uh, Skim, have uh, all been great. Audible was a big investment, but that again goes back to Alan patrickoff Associates days. Uh, uh, the uh, the founder of Audible, interesting, was recently honored by the Penn America Association, and uh, uh, he sold the company to Amazon about five, six, seven at Least seven years ago, maybe more, and uh, he's still running the company, uh, uh, which is very encouraging and he's enthusiastic as ever. But I, the one theme around all those companies you've mentioned, they all have something to do with media. Uh, as you know, I would also was very early on in the cellular business, and uh, most recently, I've kind of made a Real taking a real stake in the podcast business. Uh, And so media has been an area of my particular focus, expertise. uh, But in all honesty, uh, the media business today is a tough area to invest in. It doesn't get the same multiples as uh, cybersecurity and uh, uh, information sciences and fintech. So there's uh, certainly for gray crop, there's a lot less interest in uh, media investing. And I think that's probably true for a lot of uh, firms. Uh, You would know that as well as I would. uh, But uh, I still have an affinity for the media business. I must say, in prime time, we have not yet. Invested in a media company. The closest we've gotten is a company called Guest Setup, which has a couple of million people online who are there providing entertainment, education, services, uh, which is really all compensated for by the insurance plans who want to keep people at home more invigorated and more uh, feeling less lonely because loneliness is a big, big problem. Uh, for the aging, aging uh population
0: yeah you, you're so right though i think prime time uh, is such a a brilliant idea uh, i'm amazed the guy who works with us was a partner at pwc and they have forced retirement at 60 years old well that's and that was the issue People that's so much more to give it's it's almost insanity that you would sideline people at that young age
1: well uh, i hate to tell you that apex you have to You're also pushed out at 60. And a lot of the law firms are, whether it's 60 or 65. uh, It's one of the reasons I started Primetime, because we are also interested in in potentially investing in uh, older entrepreneurs who want to go back and do it again like I did. Think about it. I started my second company at 72, my third firm at 85, And if I can do it, why can't anybody else? And I think you have to have the energy. And I think the secret is to go back in the same business. Uh, You know, you got a great Rolodex, you have uh, experience and uh, uh, why pack it in uh, if you're in good health? So instead of going to Florida or playing golf, uh, you know, run with the business.
0: Fantastic. And potentially run in November in the New York Marathon, which is incredible at 87. God bless.
1: That's that's literal, not figurative.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You've done so much work, Alan. Also, we can just touch on it. We can go sort of any way you want because there's so many places to go. But you've been involved in politics. You've been involved in volunteering and helping so many organizations and not for profits. As you reflect back, are there any particularly fond memories of those dalliances, both in politics and all your volunteer work?
1: Well, I think uh, the four years I spent between 2002 and 2006 when I started Graycroft, I spent a lot of time in the uh, international development world. And I traveled uh, to a lot of far off places, had a lot of exciting experiences. I, uh, part of that time I was an advisor to the president of Nigeria, uh, even though I had no investments in Nigeria. And, uh,
0: uh but he and I met, he invited me, and I, I thought it would
1: be an interesting experience, which it was. But I worked for the IFC, for the World Bank, for several, uh, nonprofits, uh, and all of which were focused on bringing entrepreneurial
0: developments to, uh, you know, far off places like Bangladesh or, or Bolivia or you name it. Incredible. And you've also got really grounded perspective in the political arena. Uh, you've had friends on both sides of the aisle and, and still do. What are your thoughts now looking at the political landscape in America now A lot of people, myself included, are very worried about the future of our democracy. And we have conversations and read, you know, from smart folks like Thomas Friedman who express similar concerns. What's your take on where we are, and how do we put this country back together again, or or are we past that point now? I don't know
1: if you're reflecting on Tom Friedman's latest, uh, most recent uh, editorial. If it's sitting down and having a tuna fish salad sandwich with the president, but
0: I, I am. Yeah, uh, uh,
1: I think all of us have to be concerned. Uh, you know, there are things going on right while we're talking in uh, primary elections, and uh, which have you know, influences that, you know, sometimes shock me is, you know, the uh, people are still trying to read uh, Read, to try the election of 2020 there uh, uh, voting restrictions uh i mean you just name it uh the abortion discussion uh i think we're we're going backwards and uh, the, the, uh, you know i think we have to be concerned with uh, the influences that are affecting the electorate that uh, are causing uh, a i don't know i mean i the outlook is very, uh, very bleak. On the other hand, we seem to have come out of these things in the past, and so I'm I think Biden's doing, for example, is doing a great job, great job against formidable odds. You know, he's put back to work so many people, and yet, uh, uh people, you know, at the same time, inflation's going up, and uh. Uh, people blame him for inflation, uh, yet unemployment is going down, employment's going up, wages are going up. uh, But uh, when they take the polls, people are not feeling better about where they're at. And there are a lot of uh, extraneous influences that have uh, made... The general population not as not as uh, supportive or comfortable with where the country's going. So, uh, I don't have the answer, uh, but I think we all have to be concerned by the issues that you know are confronting us today.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's harder, but I agree with you that we have to find the optimism somewhere,
1: and we have to get
0: involved. I mean,
1: I think if we want to see some of these things solved i think we have to not just get financially involved but i think we have to get you know yeah. become active
0: yeah no I, I think you're right all right l- let's talk about some of the fish that got away you told some great stories in the book one about howard schultz and starbucks in particular but as you reflect back going back to alan patrick Hoff associates or apex or graycroft are there some others that sometimes if you lay awake at night that you lament, boy, I I, I I sure nailed a lot, but I missed a couple. Talk about some of the ones that got away.
1: Well, I talked about the fact that, you know, Starbucks, I missed completely because living in New York City, I just couldn't understand how a coffee shop, a uh, chain of four coffee shops in, in Seattle could provide anything that. You didn't get in the multiple luncheonettes on every single corner of uh, New York, and so you know I had a parochial bias, unfortunately. Uh, but I also I didn't have the opportunity to invest uh, honestly. But when Travis uh, I could never pronounce his last name from Uber came came to see me at a suggestion of someone from California, it was really to discuss what I thought about the possibility of. Uh, a new car service uh, in New York, and uh, uh, you know, my I I, I, did, I didn't get it because if you walked out of my door, you could get run over by a black car in those days, and I didn't see that that black car opportunity in organizing it, uh, and I also thought the, the uh, taxi commission and the taxi fleet owners were so strong that you'd be fighting a very formidable force in uh, New York, again, uh, not realizing that there are lots of places in the country besides New York where that kind of service availability was a, would be a boon to transportation. But I, I wasn't, uh, it was really a discussion rather than uh, a. Uh, uh, coming. He, he wasn't coming to me for raise money. The same thing in a way, uh, when we work, which uh, uh, we weren't investing in real estate, uh, never have, and yet I, I did see the opportunity that uh, shared was all he had to do was see one facility, which I saw when he had one on Barrack Street in New York, and I uh, immediately called the CEO of of uh, Boston Properties, when the New York Stock Exchange where uh, I was on the board and said, you got to rush down here and see what's what the uh, AAA buildings are going to face in the future with shared office space. And uh, uh, he got it. Uh, he caught on it. It just was, I, I didn't see it as a technology company uh, and I'm not sure it still is a technology company. I still think it is a real estate company and it's, affected by real estate trends, although I think it is, you know, really revolutionized the, uh, the real estate, commercial real estate business, uh, and uh, uh, presented lots of alternatives to people taking full full floors and office buildings, including major corporations.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that trend is here to stay. So w- 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 let's talk a little bit more about primetime. And uh, I love what you're doing there. I love this next chapter. We won't call it the final because you've got a couple left to write. But that's got to be exciting for you to be back helping entrepreneurs. And in this case, entrepreneurs who have been around the racetrack a few times.
1: Well, yes, I don't want to confuse that. Not all older entrepreneurs. We are looking, we are open to invest in older entrepreneurs. But most of the companies that we have financed, honestly, which was a big surprise, are young people who have had someone they know, whether it's a grandparent or a parent or a brother or a sister who has incurred some difficulty, or uh, somehow they've been, become aware of uh, the difficulty that older people face, whether it's caregiving, whether it's nutrition, whether it's not, we don't invest in in, uh, biotech or in in pharmaceuticals or in in equipment, Uh, but the need for services, whether it's financial advisory work, whether it's figuring out what to do with their home home ownership, uh, other than just selling it, uh, as I said, get set up. Uh, We have one investment company called Carewell, which uh, is it affect a combination of Amazon and a surgical supply store. And it has everything that an older person needs and it has uh, it's set up with uh, personal care. You can actually talk to someone and get advice on what to buy rather than being totally electronically oriented. So it accommodates older people and uh, the whole caregiving problem, and nurses today and uh, nurses assistants are how to to automate the services they provide. Uh, And I I will tell you that the health plans like United and uh, Anthem will do anything they possibly can uh, to provide any kind of service that will keep a client one day out of the hospital. It's so expensive to put someone in the hospital that uh, they will provide services like Get Set Up. They'll, we have a company called Bold, which does um, uh, balancing. So it makes sure people don't fall, because uh, fall prevention is an enormous problem for uh, people. Uh, bring meals to homes, uh, uh, having people who visit and uh, try to reduce the, the amount of loneliness by helping shop or to make sure they take the medicines. These are all the kind of services that are, that are popping up. And I would say all, most of them are not paid for by the consumer, but really by the health plans. And uh, I say again, they want to keep people out of hospitals and of course, you have the whole end of life situation with, with hospice, and that uh, service, which is very important. And you get into trusts and estates and you get into wills and you get into burial and funerals. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that are, you know, become necessary to get an end of life. and People don't like to think about it. And uh, We're increasingly seeing younger people thinking about their older people and how, you know, or before it happens.
0: Well, and as you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you're in a very short period of time looking at more of the country being over 60 than under 18, you know, that's that's a huge area of opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Thesis, it's and I can tell you there's a lot of interest in that. And where when we started, yeah, there weren't there weren't people specifically dedicated to this. I think they're we're now, we're certainly not alone. Uh, there are at least a half a dozen or a dozen other firms, not more that are focused on this area, but I think a lot of the, the major firms uh, are focused on uh, uh, you know, putting an investment in this area. Longevity is the key word. We have a, an interest in a very successful longevity clinic called Cenogenics which has 20 clinics around the country and has developed very elaborate programs with nutraceuticals and with hormones and with testing and with monitoring and, uh, that is designed to prevent you from getting diabetes, to prevent you from getting heart attack, hopefully to slow down the rate of uh, mental uh, or, uh, you know, uh, mental You know senility or Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, they can slow them down, and it can extend ages. As you know from my book, I intend to live to 114, so I have 27 years to go. If I don't get there, you can laugh at my funeral if you're still alive. Uh, But uh, I think if you if you condition yourself, you run your life on a basis that. You know, there's a big future. Uh that thought process and keeping yourself active and, and you know not becoming sedentary uh helps to get you to those kind of objectives. And so uh I think to anyone who's listening here, you know, think like I do. And I I've, I've set myself up to be the poster child of say if I can do it, you can do it.
0: You sure have. And 81 years after you were selling newspapers for a nickel on a subway still firing on all cylinders absolutely inspirational uh i can't thank you enough for doing this and uh no red lights is a must read uh on the business shelves and uh, you, can beyond it, business. you can get it in amazon uh
1: barnes and Noble, target uh or your local uh, hopefully your local bookstore if they don't have it you can order it uh but it's uh At the moment, I'm very proud. At the moment, it's number one in the in the business area, not you know, not in the New York Times bestseller, but in the business area of of Amazon. So it's it's doing reasonably well.
0: That's great, and it's more than a business book. It's an inspirational book. And uh, I've enjoyed this. I always enjoy uh, any opportunity to engage and talk with you. Or uh, I, I have deep regrets that I promised you mushy French toast at our last breakfast that it didn't come <laughs> out know, as you requested. I, now, that's I'm on. Still me. I
1: still I still ask for it I I
0: go. You got a good memory. Wonderful. And I'll speak to you soon and stay well. All right, thank you for inviting me.